Welcome to the Legal One podcast. Legal One is pleased to partner with the Education Law Center to offer this podcast series focused on the ongoing fight for educational equity in the state of New Jersey for all New Jersey children, regardless of race, ethnicity, or income level. This series will examine how far New Jersey has come in the past half century, largely as a result of the groundbreaking Abbott v. Burke litigation, where we are today, and the emerging challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. In this series, listeners will hear directly from legal experts, policymakers, school leaders, and advocates who were personally instrumental in the fight for equity and how they have overcome significant obstacles every step of the way. Each episode features David Chiara, Executive Director of the Education Law Center, interviewing one or more key stakeholders in the fight for equity. We hope that this series will both inform and inspire, and that listeners will take up the call to do their part in this critical and ongoing effort. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. In this episode, we are pleased to have Tony Trangone, Superintendent of the Millville Public Schools, and Dr. David Adderholt, Superintendent of West Windsor Plainsboro Regional School District. While they are leading two very different school districts, one urban with a high percentage of low-income families and the other suburban with a high percentage of affluent families, both have been leaders in the effort to promote educational equity for all students, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or even zip code. They will be discussing the impact of the Abbott v. Burke litigation, and in particular, the Abbott 4 decision, in which the court embraced the concept of having substantive curriculum standards as part of the constitutionally protected entitlement to a thorough and efficient system of public schools for all students. So I want to welcome to our podcast series two current superintendents of schools of New Jersey school districts. One is my friend, Tony Trugone who's now superintendent of the Millville Public Schools, one of the 31 districts covered in the Abbott ruling, directly covered in the Abbott ruling. He had previously worked in Pemberton and Pemberton School District as well. Uh, and David Adderhold, who's the superintendent of the West Windsor Plainsboro Public Schools, which is a suburban school district, I guess you would call it, clearly one of the best public school systems in the United States. But anyway, so uh, welcome to this podcast series, uh, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. The topic we're going to cover is the Abbott rulings related to the requirement for substantive education standards from the state and assessments that provide a substantive content of education for all kids across the state and the court's rulings on that. And in addition to related to that is the court's pronouncements about how the state's funding formula for all school districts has to be connected to, actually connected to the uh, funding needed to enable students, all students, suburban and urban, to have the meaningful opportunity to achieve those substantive standards. And so I'm going to ask some questions to both of you about it. And I really want to get not your, you know, you're not lawyers. I'm not looking for your legal opinion about them, the, the correctness or, you know, um, how off base the court might have been, but to really talk about how these play out on the ground every day in in your school districts and in your experience and uh, how important how important they are to your work to have this kind of a robust legal framework that's that's sort of behind what you're doing every day. So, uh, and it gets into a little bit of the whole movement to standards-based reform in education that came about in the late 1990s, accelerated with the passage of No Child Left Behind in 2000. So we're gonna dig into that topic here today. I wanna, again, thank you for being here. 
Why don't we start out, David, why don't you talk a little bit about your background? One of the rulings we're going to be talking about was the Abbott ruling in 1997 that really, you know, really dug into these issues and really had some important pronouncements to say about the state's obligation in this area. Maybe you can talk a little bit about where you were then and, and what you've been doing since and where you are now. Thank you, David. I, I appreciate the opportunity to join you. So if I go back to 97, when the Abbott ruling um, came out, I was actually a senior at TCNJ or College of New Jersey. And then I started teaching at Willingboro as a history teacher in 98, spent a couple of years at Willingboro and then Bridgewater Raritan and had the opportunity to become an assistant principal at North Brunswick Public Schools. And from North Brunswick, I went to New Brunswick as the principal. After New Brunswick, I came to West Windsor Plainsboro, where I've been for the last 13 years as assistant superintendent and deputy superintendent, and for the last nine years as superintendent. In addition to, to being there, uh, to being here, I also am the president of the Garden State Coalition of Schools, and I'm an adjunct professor at Ryder University for the past nine years, where I currently am teaching three courses in the doctoral um, program on school funding, on equity, and on moral and ethical leadership. So were you a principal of New Brunswick High School? I was. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was there uh, was from before. 2006 to 2009. Rich Kaplan was the superintendent at the time. Oh, right. Okay. And that was before the new high school was built? I was actually the principal overseeing the construction project. Oh, it okay. completed wow. as I came to West Windsor Plainsboro. Oh, wow. Uh, and a, a result of the Abbott rulings, by the way. Exactly. Exactly. Right. The Garden State Coalition for Schools. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, Garden State Coalition of Schools uh, represents primarily suburban districts, just, on, just around 100. Uh, we have an executive director in Betsy Ginsburg, and we do a lot of educational advocacy work throughout the state and uh, fighting for fair and equitable funding, looking for policy clarifications from, from the NJDOE, uh, working with legislatures to make sure that educators' voices are heard. Um, and the last really two and a half school years, I've done a tremendous amount of work around, around the, uh, the challenges of COVID-19 and trying to make sure that there's clear guidance for schools and advocating when there isn't. And unfortunately, we're doing a lot of advocating because there really isn't. Tell us just briefly a little bit about your current district, West Windsor Plainsboro. Who, who are the, what's the student population like and so forth and so on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a unique district. Um, we're, we're just about, we, well, if we went back pre-pandemic, we were about 9,600 students. Right now we're just over 9,100 students. We have an international community that has not been coming to the United States these last uh, two years. So we're down about 600 students through the pandemic. And we are, just over 70% Asian uh, majority, primarily Chinese Indian, Southeast Asian, and then we're about 20% white and 6% uh, African-American, um, about 4% Hispanic. But if we look within our schools and we look to our K-3 level, we're almost 95% Asian. So it's, it's a dynamic um, student population, high achieving population, We've had tremendous challenges over time with mental health and done a lot of advocacy around mental health support, um, suicidal ideation, whatnot. And we have taken a very proactive um, stance around diversity, equity, and inclusivity, um, been having very public conversations around the work for the last several years, but really public the last three years. I'm really proud of the work that the district's leading in, in that respect. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a community that sees over 70% of our residents with master's or doctorates. Um, we're right off the train line in Princeton Junction. So whether it's uh, the local pharmaceuticals of J&J you know, and Bristol-Myers-Squibb or, or folks heading up to New York City or 
doctors and professors from the surrounding universities and hospitals. It's a demanding community, a community that has high regard and high respect for um, education and has tremendous value in the schools. So I take it it's a, a community with high property wealth, relatively high property wealth and high household incomes. Is that, is that correct? That's, that's very fair to say. There is, there is definitely a population of students that does not meet that category and that we need to make sure that we're providing a lot of support to, but the overwhelming majority of community members are exactly as you indicated. Let me turn to you, uh, Tony. Um, where were you in 1997 and how did you get to where you are today? And tell us a little bit about Millville. I always wonder how I got here. So uh, I'm glad you asked that question. And uh, uh, so I was in Northern Burlington as a high school math teacher teaching algebra two, calculus. And, and then uh, eventually uh, what happened, reform mathematics came into play in the late 90s. And I was receptive. I was one of the folks at the administration said, can you help us out with the, the changes we want to make with our educational program in mathematics? And and then from there, I learned a lot about the reform movement in mathematics, and I got involved in the standards movement. I got involved with Joe Rosenstein from Rutgers when I was at Northern Burlington, and a lot of folks in the Department of Ed. And then from there, I had a life change, and uh, I needed to be closer to home. So my former supervisor had gotten a job at Gloucester City in Abbott District and said, Tony, I have a perfect job for you. I know you're a math teacher. You'll love it where you're at, but they have what's called a math facilitator, which is a byproduct of all the work you've done, David, with the Abbott rulings and the uh, whole school reform movement that, uh, that went on in, in the late 90s. And I, this was now in 2001. So uh, in 2001, I was in Gloucester City, did a lot of work there. Again, I was involved with meeting with Gordon McGinnis once a year and going through the undertakings of, of the presumptive budgets and learning. I was part of the superintendent's cabinet so uh, I didn't have the lens of a superintendent, but I did have some knowledge about the goings-on of, of Abbott funding at the time, and also preschool that was uh, kicking off at that time, too, with pre funding of preschools. That being said, I was at Gloucester City for five years. I moved, the, and then a lot of folks from Gloucester City were doing their dissertations at Penn with folks from Cherry Hill. They saw the work I was doing in the math program at Gloucester City. If you remember a fellow named Moore Chairman, he was a superintendent of Cherry Hill. He took a walk through what we were doing in Cherry Hill with our map uh, in Gloucester City with our map program. He took me to a, a, a restaurant and said, I want, I want you to be my math supervisor. And I turned him down one year. And then a, a year later, I did go to Cherry Hill. I was the K-12 math supervisor. And the, the job morphed into much more than that because, uh, because of the fact that Cherry Hill was so severely underfunded thinking you would go to a large uh, urban high-performing school district that you would just concentrate on, on math curriculum and math instruction, but it wound up, uh, my job expanded across the, uh, across the continuum of administrative responsibilities. We focused on equity and closing the achievement gap, did a real good job there, worked with the Delaware Valley Minority Student Achievement Consortium, and then uh, we implemented universal acceleration. It was pretty tough to do that in, in, uh, in uh, Cherry Hill, but we did so, we, and we, we made great strides with closing the achievement gap in Cherry Hill. And from there, I was on many different math committees within the Depart New Jersey Department of Ed. I was part of a New Jersey Department of Ed math committee for would name a, name a committee in math for uh, standards, assessment, range finding, uh, the gamut with that. And I was very uh, heavily involved with that. And from there, I, um, I was offered, offered a job as a superintendent. Uh, and I was offered a job five years in Cherry Hill. Then I went to Berlin and Gibbsboro as a shared superintendent, small K to eight districts. 
I did a lot of what I did in, in Cherry Hill as far as the math curriculum and, and, uh, and we, student performance uh, was greatly improved there. And then uh, from there, the uh, character ed was, I guess, the, my greatest accomplishment there. Uh, we wanted kids to be smart, but also good. But I, after five years there, I got the itch to go back. I wanted to do more work with high needs districts. And that's where I went to Pemberton in uh, 2015. And I got, because of the, the changes in school funding, Pemberton was a district that was $25 million supposedly overfunded. And we were part of a, a drastic cut in state aid. So we really, I really had to be an advocate for Pemberton over a period of time to mitigate any of those cuts. And uh, David, you were involved with the fact that we were municipal overburdened. There was an error in my calculation. We actually increased our local fair share, which put us over the threshold for municipal overburden and the state did not catch that. And uh, it wound up uh, saving Pemberton over two and a half million dollars in state aid in one year. And so that, that saved a great deal of jobs and a great deal of service to our kids in Pemberton. I'm also at Pemberton is affiliated with the McGuire Dix Lakehurst Air Force Base. And I was selected to be the commissioner for a military connected family. So I, I got very much involved with what needs to be done for our students who transition from one base to another and make sure they're landing in New Jersey. And I even deal with our New Jersey students that are military connected when they leave New Jersey because of all the services we provide our, our students uh, in special ed. And so, uh, so I'm still involved on a daily basis with making sure those transitions are smooth for our military connected kids. And then the biggest piece too, I mean, with school funding, but also character ed was really big in Pemberton, but also a great deal of policy work in Pemberton. And, uh, and again, I made some great strides. Student achievement was uh, greatly uh, improved there. And then after five years in Pemberton, uh, I took a job in Millville. And uh, just like what David said, I've been advocates for I've been trying to keep kids in school and, and keep kids safe. So we're really doing everything we can. We're, I brought back the book from uh, 20 years ago, Who Moved My Cheese? Because uh, the cheese just doesn't in station C anymore. We have to be sniffing scary to look for where we need to do to keep schools open. We have to find different solutions now to provide uh, a safe and orderly learning environment for our kids. And then talk about equity. I will digress about the fact that Having kids in school is an equity problem because when you talk about access, a high needs district or the, the children in a high needs district need access to their educational agency in their area. So uh, that's a big, big uh, passionate push by myself and my administrative team to make sure that Millville is open every single day for our kids, providing the services that they need every single day, not just academically, but also social emotionally, making sure they're fed and, uh, and whatever their needs and the support are. So it's been a heavy lift for all superintendents across the state. And David can attest to that too. So uh, that's how I got here. So tell us a little bit about Millville Public Schools, uh, who they serve, what kind of student population and the sort of property wealth and income. Uh, Millville's in, in very deep South Jersey. I know it well. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a quite diverse community. So we have about 35% uh, African-American and other 20% Hispanic, and then a remainder uh, white. Uh, the community itself is uh, almost like the Deep South, where we have some high wealth areas, uh, but they don't go to the public schools in the area. They'll go to private schools. So where the wealth is, 
they don't participate as a rule in the public school systems in Cumberland County in general, not just Millville. Uh, besides that, as far as the wealth, uh, you're right. It, it is, uh, there's, a, there's some extreme poverty. We have over 75% free and reduced lunch in the district. And, uh, and so when, you, when there's been a lot of discussion about urban poverty, but uh, I, I can assure you from working five years in Pemberton and now over a year and a half in Millville, uh, rural poverty is even more challenging for, for the community and regarding meeting the needs for our kids and, and get just getting to school or getting to an event or getting to some interest that the kids like to have. And so uh, it is different. It's a little, it's, a, it's, I'm not being negative by saying it's a little backward in, in regard to the expectations of what we expect our students to know and be able to do academically. Uh, if you look at Cumberland County as a whole, uh, the, the highest percentage of achievement is about 35% proficient. And it seems to be uh, the norm. I'm not going to say it's expected, uh, but and in Pemberton, uh, Pemberton, sorry, Millville is uh, over the past six or seven years has remained fairly stagnant in their student achievement. And so there, there has to be a, a culture shift in regard to the expectations of what we want our students to know and be able to do in, in Millville Public Schools. Well, wonderful. So it's, uh, we have two deeply experienced seasoned um, educators and education leaders to talk about the Supreme Court's rulings in Abbott around standards-based education. And that's what I wanna talk to you both about. And I'm gonna kind of go through a few of the main points that the court raised and the main, I would say, obligations they put on the state with respect to the system, the whole system, which includes your school districts and your school children, even though you're both running uh, school districts in very different communities and with very different student populations, very different, as you said, Tony, expectations and so forth. David was talking about the very high expectations in his district that he has to deal with. So first thing I want to talk about is that the court in in a number of decisions, really going back to the first big decision in Abbott in 1990, and then again in 1997, when it was reviewing a funding formula that then Governor Whitman had enacted and basically declared that that funding formula was not sufficient to meet constitutional requirements. The court has defined what a thorough and efficient education is for all children in New Jersey. And I wanna, and this is a general definition, thorough and efficient, doesn't say much, right? Well, what does that mean? There's, there's a little bit of quality there, thorough, efficient, but what does it mean in terms of the educational expectations, educational goals and aspirations that the system needs to aspire to, that the state in running the system, because our constitutional obligation is with the state, the state runs the whole system, in effect, your districts are kind of creatures of the state, constructs of the state, helping to deliver that education locally. And I'm just going to read you uh, the court's definition of what a thorough and efficient education is and, and get your reaction to it. The court said, our constitution requires that public school children be, giving the, be given the opportunity for a thorough and efficient education. That constitutional vision irrefutably presumes that every child is potentially capable of attaining his or own place as a contributing member in society with the ability to compete effectively with other citizens and to succeed in the economy, to compete 
effectively and succeed in the economy. So citizenship and a notion of competitiveness in the labor market and in the you know, economic life of, of, of our state. And then they went on to say that the wisdom giving rise to that vision is that both the child and the society benefit immeasurably when that potential is realized. So how important, that's, that's this notion of an education, a third efficient education means an education that enables, that gives kids the opportunity to become active citizens, participants in the civic life of our state and their communities. And also this notion, which is kind of unique among the states, the notion of an education that enables kids to compete in the economy, to compete in the labor market, to, to be productive in that respect is, un is unique. How important is it to have that kind of a overarching sort of definition that grounds everything that you do? David, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so I mean, if we're talking about citizenship and thinking about, I mean, you really talk about like mission statement and strategic vision. Um, and we talk about the importance of tradition and part of our missions about empowering our learners to contribute to diverse and changing world. So we talk about that importance of confidence, strength of character, love of learning. We talk about the importance of students' intrinsic worth and embracing diversity, empowering our students to be uh, thoughtfully contributing members of our community to reaching their, their full potential, whatever their full potential may be, and helping unlock that. And that it's our responsibility as an educational entity to help guide and support them along their growth, empowering them. And they're recognizing that all our students are in like individual learning journeys. So we, we talk a lot, actually a lot about that. And it does fall into some of the core responsibility of public education. How do you deal, uh, you mentioned that you have, uh, not now, I guess you, because of COVID, you've lost a lot of international students who are attending your district. How do you deal with the issue of citizenship and civic life issues like that to students who may be there for a while and, and maybe oh, moving well, we, on? Yeah, one of, one of the, the surprising components, I think, of uh, West Windsor Plainsboro is when we look at our K-5 population, by the time fifth grade comes, 40% transition has happened. So we, we do see a lot of mobility early. And then after that, it does really sort of settle in sixth grade through 12th grade. Um, we still see mobility, but not as much. So, so there's patterns and themes about what we value that re, uh, repeat itself throughout the curriculum and repeat itself with throughout our schools. We're a K3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 12 school system. So we do have some interesting grade level breaks. And that's more based on how we grew up and how the facilities grew up uh, within the community. But for as many of our international community that's not coming, there's a tremendous international community that's here still that has tremendous value of education and that we, we build on that. So I don't really see the fact that we've had a slowdown the last couple of years um, being a detriment, but, but rather an opportunity to sort of capitalize on the community that's here now. Tony, what, how, does, how, does, how does that definition, I mean, you talked a little bit about raising, I guess, expectations of the community about what their children can do and achieve and attain how does this definition square up with what you're trying to do in Millville? I'm going to start off with a saying that you, you can't have second things but without first focusing on first things, I tell people. And so you have to look at what our society values. And then being exposed to uh, like a Cherry Hill and the social engineering that goes on to cultivating uh, the end product in, in regarding to being a, a contributing member of society and, and in competing a competing member of society and being effective in society. I don't believe that that is 
there's no north for them uh, in Millville on that. It merely is uh, focused on survival as a, as, a, as, a, as a focus. And so you don't, when, when you focus just on survival, you lose that, that north, that you, that any goal that you might have. So that's why when you look at Millville, they'll focus on sports and a way out for sports. It's a cliche. But uh, again, uh, there's, there's not a lot of social engineering to say how to get there. So we talk about a mission and a mission statement, but then I don't think the folks as a rule do not know how to get there and they don't have anyone to coach them to get there. As you do, like I said, in my experience in Cherry Hill, I learned the social engineering that goes on with how to get there and uh, the commitment that's necessary, uh, the stick-to-itiveness, the grit, but also you know, the planning that goes on for where you need to be at certain parts of your academic career and, and, uh, and, and then your goals. And so uh, it, as when you're an educational leader in a school district like Pemberton or Millville, you really have to do a lot of preaching about the end game that's very abstract to them right now because all they know is a struggle. And then also the disconnect with the school district and their experience of learning. So it's tough to convince somebody that this is going to uh, have a positive outcome when their experience might not have been in Millville, but I noticed that they have a psychological disposition not to like school and then school has not worked out for them. It hasn't been a, uh, the equalizer that we say it will be for them so they can be a contributing member of society. You both of you have um, <clears throat> very different tasks in this regard. I think with David, you're, you don't, You've got high expectations that, uh, and the court's words, um, every child potentially capable of attaining his or her own place as a contributing member in society and the ability to compete effectively with other citizens and to succeed in the economy. That doesn't seem like it's much of a problem in terms of the expectations for you. Now, you have to obviously manage manage that still. Right. Uh, but for Tony, or Tony, it seems like you you've got to actually convince people that that's possible, right? That that's that that their children, their children are capable of achieving those goals. Is it's just striking to me the the differences in these two communities and New Jersey. They're really not that far apart either. Like you got to look at, like you said, like when David talked about how something is more like the embryonic stages of a town or a community. So Millville, it was an industrial town, and so it's it's built that uh, that particular personality that this is the uh, American way. This is the American dream that you, you just go to the factory, you know, and then you, you work there, you, you have three square meals a day and you, your, your kids uh, participate in different community events. And then the next generation comes on after that. And then when the businesses and the industrial businesses leave, there becomes poverty, not, not telling you anything you don't already know. And so uh, I look at a town like Pittsburgh, where it was a steel town, I tell people in Millville, but yet they, they turned it around because when I was in Cherry Hill, I did a lot of work there with Lauren Resnick. And, uh, and then the, the, uh, it turned itself into more, it focused more on intellectual capital. And so Pittsburgh turned its, its, itself around by investing in itself. And it took time. It takes, it takes more than five years, it takes about 20 years. But that's where I'm up against to say we can do this if we can we can change the narrative a little bit and say you can do this. You know, it's, it's interesting, Tony, like how you talk about the, how a town grows up and creates its identity. For West Windsor and Plainsboro, they really 
exploded in population growth in the early 80s through early 90s. And the, the district added five schools during that time period to get to attend school. So we grew up really fast. Um, and we grew up around, uh, went from a farming community primarily to a, to a white collar labor market, also with the growth of some of the universities, the hospitals, the financial markets and the train line. And so our parents also are, especially for our parents that come internationally are often the best of the best within their classes. It's a, they come with a very high appreciation for education and a desire to be, to attain the highest, highest results. So a lot of times they came to the United States either for the job opportunity and or the, the next degree. And to get out of their, their province or their region, they had to be in the top, the top 100, the top 10%, the top five to get to the best university. So a lot of our parents' mental model was acceleration and dedication to education. And that they brought that the work ethic and, and uh, love of education as a place of advancement for themselves and that mindset here with their, their children. And now we're in generations. Now we're in generations of, and we're having graduates with children in district. And, and so we're seeing that mindset continue. And some of our challenges have actually been about paring down some of the, the uh, over acceleration in one aspect of, of the child's development of academic only to try and make sure we're broadening and thinking about their full, their full development, um, which, is, which has actually resonated a lot to a lot. Back in 2015, it created some angst but today, our families serve, I think, appreciate the, the attempt at balance. But, uh, but the, the, the core of all of it is this tremendous respect and reverence for learning and learning as a means to advance and contribute. And so when you have that as a basis of a community that highly values education, you have a lot to work with. And, and of course, a, a very highly dedicated educational staff. Those differences, um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit. We're not going to get into it too much today, but it's sort of already laid out here the you know because of New Jersey's the way New Jersey school districts are boundaries are drawn you have these incredible differences in school systems and the populations they serve I guess that's what both of you are bringing out the expectations the cultural backgrounds the diversity the and and the expect and the expectations ground and history as well that create these you know just tremendous differences uh, and they can be in districts that are, you know, I mean, David, you're what, uh, 10 miles from Trenton. Uh, yep, absolutely. You know, and three miles from Princeton or two miles from Princeton. So uh, the, those differences are just, just extraordinary. I don't know if either of you want to comment on that, which creates a challenge, right? The challenges that we're going to talk about. I want to add the, our boards of education too, the, the folks that you know, that, that are responsible for evaluating the superintendent, setting policy. So in Pemberton and in, in, in Millville, the superintendent as the educational leader might have a certain set of values of where you need to go. But then those nine people in both Pemberton and Millville, that was the construct of their boards. Maybe they're not, that's not where they want to go to. So there's an obstacle on, on where you want to go because of, again, their uh, psychology of what of what success is, and uh, and then and meeting that goal of, of being a competitive you know competitive citizen in society, and so that's also a struggle for for a superintendent that, that wants to you know move move the ball down the field so to speak. And I, I have to agree with Tony. There's there's no doubt that the development of the board and the uh, relationship of the whether it's a nine member, seven member, five member, whatever 
member board is tremendously linked to a superintendent's success and, and the long-term relationship. So, you know, cultivating a board and making sure that there's alignment in how you're moving forward with your, your vision of how you're going to then implement your curriculum, how you're going to implement professional development, how you're going to make sure that you know, what your course sequences are, what your staffing ratios are, how you manage your budget, all the different elements, and then all the different support services that your school community may need. I mean, the, the reality of some of the, in a West Windsor Plainsboro, there are challenges that come into the community, but they're not on the same scale that Tony might be, be working with. Uh, our free and reduced lunch uh, population is strikingly different than, than Tony's. We're just about five and a half percent now within no school is higher than 11 or 12 percent so that is vastly different than, than tony i believe you said 85 percent now i've i've worked in a school community as the principal in new brunswick um, that was um, around 80 something percent and the only reason it wasn't 100 percent is because kids didn't have social security numbers to make it 100 percent, right i mean or near 100 percent. i mean it, the reality was that the needs were there um, the needs were there we have, as we've opened up our, our food banks and as we've opened up our food distribution, we've seen much higher need than the, the 5% that would see it. And so, you know, we have recognized through this, there's a lot of families that have struggled financially and that have struggled through. There's a lot of families that need services and supports and um, access to access to, to help navigate systems, um, the medical system, you know, the health, mental health system. So I think there's a lot of opportunity four districts to play that role. But I think the, the scale that Tony sees or my colleague in Trenton, who was a former assistant soup sees, or even, even uh, the fringe districts to, to urban, the, you know, the urban fringe, uh, whether it's Hamilton or Ewing in Mercer County, uh, as an example, have, have, tre have tremendous challenges when it comes to things that are not necessarily related to curriculum instruction. The court in Abbott talked about part, a lot of the Abbott rulings were designed to where well, they applied to the urban districts and the court uh, spent a lot of time making sure that the state addressed the, um, the what the court called back in the 90s, the disadvantages that children from high poverty neighborhoods and high poverty communities bring with them to school. The sort of double disadvantage, if you will, of, of the accident of where they were, their environment in which they grew up. And then what happened when they came into school in those days, because when the Abbott case was tried, it was a suburban urban comparison and the condition of the urban districts was deplorable, had deteriorated over the, since the Second World War. So it's really designed to get at that. Um, I want to move on to the issue, though, of, of substantive standards and uh, education standards. New Jersey, I think, was one of the leading states to adopt what we called standards-based reform in the education field, which was, you know, revolutionary. And maybe you guys can comment on this too, sort of a, a sea change, right? So before, and, and but what, I, what we mean, you know, obviously what the court is talking about and what, you know, we, when we talk about substantive education standards, we're talking about curriculum content standards. So a set of content standards that the, states, the state adopts in, a, in, in the range of curriculum content areas that are taught in schools, from the obvious ones, language, arts, and mathematics, but New Jersey's, like many other states, also include you know, health and physical education, arts, social studies, world languages, and so forth and so on. At one point, the court had to address a funding formula that, as I mentioned, Governor Whitman had adopted, in which she said that we have the answer now. We now have a 
a set of curriculum content standards that will guide what children should know and learn, kindergarten through grade 12, in all the different subject areas. And then they also claimed that they had a funding formula that was going to deliver on that. But what the court did, and this really, res I think, resonates to today throughout New Jersey's education system, it said, we like the substantive education standards uh, and assessment system that was tied to that. So, um, you know, the court talked about uh, with the adoption of the substantive curriculum standards and the assessment tests that are aligned to that, New Jersey joins a trend in favor of standards-based approach to the improvement of public education, the court said. And the court went on to say that um, the content and performance standards prescribed by the new state statute, by the new state law at that time, represent the first real effort on the part of the legislative and executive branches of state government to define the educational and implement the educational opportunity of a thorough and efficient education required by the constitution. We therefore conclude that the standards are facially adequate as a reasonable legislative definition of a constitutional thorough and efficient education. I should say they went on in a footnote to note that they don't judge, they were not going to judge the sort of rigor of the standards. That was going to be left for another day. But the whole idea of having a set of course, because and, and let me just back up because I'd like you both to comment on this. One of the things was why the court, I think, went to this was that the record in the Abbott case in the urban district showed that alongside suburban districts, urban districts curriculum was denuded in the court's words of many opportunities for a curriculum that was offered typically in our suburbs. And the quality of that curriculum in terms of science offerings, advanced placement courses, physical education, the arts and so forth, technology, so forth and so on. So I think the court was embracing this because the state was finally saying, okay, we're going to have a, a set of standards that are going to guide education across the state, and they're going to cover all the different subject areas. There's going to be an assessment regime that's tied to that, so we know where their kids and how they're doing on this. And that's going to now define for educators and for superintendents and for school boards and for districts, suburban and otherwise, what a thorough and efficient education means on the ground for kids. So maybe you both can comment on that. I mean, you've both been in the trenches for all these years dealing with this. Was this a good thing for the court to do? Has it been a, a positive, a negative? What are some of the challenges, lessons learned, so forth and so on around the whole implementation of standards-based reform in New Jersey as a constitutional matter now? Remember, what the court did was say, this has constitutional weight behind it. David, you want to start sure. us out? I know that's a big question. No, I, I, and I appreciate the question. I mean, the, the, the mindset we've taken in WWP is that standards are not the cur curriculum. Standards represent an expectation and that they define that expectation. And for us, they're a minimum expectation for, for what should be achieved at a certain grade level. They're, they're, not the, they're not something that we aspire to. They're something that we aspire to sort of crush and exceed. Um, so, you know, we, they're a minimum standard in, in my estimation. Um, so, so as we work through a process of revision and refinement of our curriculum, we're always looking back at the standards. We're always, um, we, we spend almost 150, 200,000 a summer just on curriculum writing, curriculum revision, and professional development um, as part of our cyclical process. 
um, that's a tremendous amount of commitment um, from our content supervisors, from our teachers um, to be dedicated in. And, and it, I think it's a, a, a testament to our community, a testament to our board, a testament to, to our educators. But I also know my colleagues near us are not spending the same amount of monies or dedicating the same amount of time. Um, so, you know, I, when we think about like the implementation of standards, it, it gets into course sequencing. Um, it gets into sort of what's your expectation of where students are at what point with your internal assessment measures. I will have over 85% of my students through algebra one or geometry by eighth grade. Uh, we have over, we have 800 students per grade off 250 students through geometry by eighth grade. Um, that means 250 will go through multivariable calculus by senior year. Right. So, you know, there, that, that is, that is um, a significant percentage of kids um, in, a, in a graduating class. Over 70% of my students will have calculus before they graduate, the majority of which will have calculus by sophomore year. And so, you know, we start thinking in terms of what's that expectation? Well, that's, that's a commitment to a mathematics sequence through a system. Um, one of the challenges we have with that is mobility, is when students come into the community from other sequences. And then how do they get absorbed within our community? And how do we meet, meet their needs along the way? Because sometimes uh, I've heard a term and we've worked to, to uh, destroy this term over time. But when I came here, it was called being district disabled. Right? That was a term that was used very loosely, meaning students that may have come from a neighboring community for an international community, it didn't matter. But if they came in and they were off sequence. So how do you work with students that come in and maybe two math sequences behind? Um, you know, they might have been coming from a math six, six, just sixth grade mathematics program and we're in pre-algebra. And then how do you help the students there? Um, so that, that's, that's been a challenge. But we, again, we've, we've looked at it as, uh, again, a minimum baseline um, from the standards and, and not something to aspire to. Right. So you're, you're, you're looking at that minimum baseline and building off of it. Is that, is that Correct. what I do? Yeah. yeah. And, and we're going to make sure we're going to make sure we incorporate the standards. We're going to make sure we're in compliance. Our documents will reflect that, but it's not, it's not what we aspire to be, it's, it's where we aspire. You get any pushback in terms of, um, does this help you at all, given that the standards cover not just the core subjects, academic, you know, what we would call quote unquote academic subjects like language arts and mathematics and, and, uh, you know, but, but also cover health and physical education, the visual and performing arts and so forth. Does it help you in a district like yours make sure that your curriculum is well-rounded? Um, so we, we just recently um, passed a, a referendum and it was at the time the highest um, grossing referendum for a public school. It was just under 115 million. Um, and in that we built dance studios at both of our high schools. Um, we did not have a, one of the components of a fully integrated music or fine and performing arts program is, is a dance curriculum. We did not have that. So in, we, in there, we, we leveraged a CUSAC finding and, and a review to say that we did not have a, you know, we had a curriculum, but we didn't actually have an implemented program. Um, and we had a, in other words, we had a curriculum for a program we didn't run uh, to be in compliance. Um, but, um, but we ultimately now are building and will be in completion by the end of this year, uh, two brand new dance studios. So, I mean, and that's, but that's, you know, you start thinking about that. It's like my, our community could afford agreed with us in the referendum to build in a dance studio and there's neighboring communities that have classroom shortages that you know are have overcrowding but we're building a dance studio so you know I, it's not lost on me how, how ridiculous that that what i just said could yeah. sound yeah, back to the disparity again Absolutely. Uh, yes given uh, given given uh, 
Yeah, and, and that's not lost on me, right? So, but but as from an example standpoint, you know, we, we you you had asked for, you know, is there an example of how the standards may help you, you know, with an instructional program? That would be an example of how we looked at something and said we don't have a full scope and sequence here. Well, I say that because you were talking about, you know, trying to, uh, I don't know what the term you used earlier, but make sure that your students are have a more sort of well-rounded, if you will, you know. Um, you know, not just a straight, you know, we're going to yeah. go to, we're going to go, we're going to graduate, go to college and go to the best colleges and all that. But, you know, and that, that's, you know. that's a challenge. But what we've done there is some of it's, we, it was almost self-inflicted where how we weighted courses also drove kids out of certain sequences. So we didn't have a, a weight in, in music and arts for honors. Well, and what we found was kids were dropping out of um, the orchestra by, by sophomore year and not continuing the sequence because their GPA and then their class rank could suffer. Well, that's a self-inflicted district policy that we fixed. So we gave optional credit. You know, we gave kids the right to opt into an honors music program. And then there were certain requirements. Well, that was something we could do sequentially and within our handbooks to do to make sure that students that had a passion for the arts didn't leave the arts because they were worried about where their GPA calculation would be. Let's let's turn to you, Tony. I, I I'm I'm really well. One thing I want to uh, just emphasize before Tony, I, uh, a point that David made is that, you know, and I think the court recognized that these were standards; they weren't curriculum, and that the and that the development of the curriculum would have to be consistent with these standards, you know, minimum or otherwise. Um, but that it was up to local school districts to actually develop the curriculum, and as you're talking, David, course sequencing and all, all, all offerings and all of those those kinds of things. And I, I think that's an important point that the court was not ordering a curriculum, a uniform curriculum across the state, but just but these standards which would guide the development of the curriculum in all of these different content areas, so that all kids regardless of which district you were in, had access to a rich and rigorous curriculum and a variety of, a wide variety of subject areas. So Tony, how, how does, in an urban, in your urban district experience now, not, well, leave Cherry Hill behind for the moment. Let's well, talk I about- wanna, I did want to know a little bit about the Cherry Hill experience because okay. they, they did the same thing back in the early 2000s. We had Cherry Hill standards. We didn't have New Jersey core curriculum content standards. And so we developed our own standards that were above what the state expected of us. But it's funny, that, and again, we had a, a you know, I, I wrote the multivariable calculus class for Cherry Hill because of the need. And then, uh, and then that, that whole acceleration piece. And then a, a, a congregation from Singapore came to Cherry Hill. And I thought they're going to come see my math program. I'm so proud of my math program. And then, uh, and they visited and uh, I talked to their uh, head of school that was part of that delegation. And then uh, that's not why they were there. They had already uh, gotten to the level where they were, you know, beating the Americans in mathematics. What they had told me was that the, uh, their competition in patents in the race for innovative patents, not design patents or redesign patents, the Americans were still outperforming uh, the Asians in, in the type of innovative patents. And it was because of the liberal arts education. And so they, want not, they wanted to see uh, a, a, learning, uh, a learning institution like Cherry Hill uh, High Schools. And then what were they doing outside the math and science realm? 
and look at the visual performing arts programs, which were excellent, and the and and the art and you know, all that. And so, it was a real eye opener for me as far as where they were going. That was back in two thousand and nine. So uh, that was a real eye opener for me. And then also with Cherry Hill, a lot of the old school Cherry Hill teachers who had that we are, you know, like with with a. Uh, what David said, we want to crush whatever the tests are, crush the scores. They felt that the standards movement movement was more of an urbanization of education. They felt it was it was constricting them of their innovative practices that they were now becoming short order cooks with with uh, this is their term. I'm a short order cook with standards rather than being a chef, and I want to build a curriculum that builds interest and. Uh, and takes us wherever it's going to take us to a higher level. And so that was my Cherry Hill experience. But uh, now going back to my urban experience in Gloucester City, Pemberton, and Millville, I look at the standards as the what. It's the what, not the how. And so when you look at the programs and they talk about the parity of an IJ with, with, with the A's and B's, um, they don't we don't stress enough about the, the how and the supplemental programs that are necessary to facilitate meeting the standards for the students in those high needs districts. And so, um, and it's not just uh, identifying as a high, uh, at risk to free and reduce lunch because you mentioned David, uh, trauma. Mm -hmm. And so that's become such a, uh, uh, there's a great expense. I know in, P in Pemberton, five years ago, we put it in. We have, an, we, 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 we focused on the ACEs scores and we, we had the whole community involved with identifying kids or who were not ready to learn that day because of something that happened uh, outside the school day. And those kids were not ready to learn. And so we have a program that, that did that. But, it, but it's, it's so we went with identification and with the expense that's not in the, in, the, in the school funding formula is the help and the support we have to give those kids because of the standards and the assessment program that the guidance counselors and the social workers have to facilitate. There weren't enough staff to meet the needs of the kids who are experiencing that trauma. And we, I can give you the data from Pemberton. There were um, like 600 cases in one year uh, when we worked with the, the local police department on notification of this kid had some type of trauma in the home the night before. And so, uh, so, so I'm, I'm using that as the, the, the how. You know, we, we know what the what is, but we have to really, and, and then and looking at Abbott, Abbott 4, um, the how can be very different in, in, in many different types of districts uh, of high needs. Uh, you look at Union and their, their community, and it's a, a large Cuban community, and so they, they value education. And how come Union has done so well over the years? They've had consistent leadership, where you see some districts where they haven't had consistent leadership. And now the, it gets lost on how we're going to meet the standards in those districts. So uh, me, as, as a person who was a math teacher, I personally have benefited from the standards movement. But as I've grown as an educator, I realized that it's, it's, much, it's, much, uh, it's very difficult to explain how we're going to meet the standards for kids uh, that, that live in, in high needs districts. Tony, can you talk a little bit though about about um, curriculum development in Millville and and I'm going to get to the issue of funding and resources in a minute. But have the standards helped you to sort of drive uh, development of a curriculum that's more 
you know, that's that's well-rounded, that's broad-based, that also offers um, uh, opportunities above, you know, uh, talking to what David called the minimum advanced placement courses, honors courses, things like that. Is that part of what you're trying to do in Millville too, to help push up the expectations of, uh, of, of, of the community and the kids that go going to your school? Yeah, so you do, you, you have to have metrics in place. And so, uh, and so the standards become that metric. Uh, but what happened is that the, some of the, of the uh, oversight of Abbott districts in regard to the measuring of success of the standards has constricted uh, them in, in regards to uh, facilitating a, a viable, a guaranteed and viable curriculum. Uh, the benchmark assessment system that was so big in, in Philly back 15, 20 years ago that everybody adopt, adopted, there's no psychological or emotional attachment that the teacher has to a benchmark assessment on prompts that the teacher doesn't have knowledge of. And so uh, I did this in Cherry Hill and I've used it in, in Pemberton. I, I, use, I use the assessments of the curriculum that is being taught and it's and it's and it's and it's it, the framework is based on the standards, and then the assessment items are linked to standards, and then it takes me about three years to correlate a performance uh, on the uh, on like a state assessment with your curriculum, and so coming to Millville, I'm doing it again now, where the culture is by this linked assessment benchmark, and if the kid does well on it, they'll do good on a test. But there's no thinking, there's no teaching, there isn't, uh, there's no nuances to the curriculum that's every day. And so, and that's why you, you this insanity, uh, it, there's like a level of insanity in, in regard to why we don't uh, do well is because we don't empower the teachers to teach uh, and then look at how they taught and look at what do you want students to be able to do? What are you going to do if they didn't learn it? What are you going to do if they did learn it? And it's the tenets of the DeFore model of professional learning communities, and then work with that system as we go along. And then over the summer, when our curriculum committees, and I did this in Cherry Hill, Berlin, and Pemberton, we refine the curriculum based on the data. And then the teachers make the decisions based on the performance of that year. And they look at the performance of the state assessments, and they don't teach to a test, they teach to a curriculum, but we want to make sure that. Uh, whatever we're teaching is is aligned to the core curriculum content standards, but Abbott districts, for as a rule, don't do that. They just uh, mindlessly are given a benchmark assessment to measure their success, and that's a blanket statement, but it's true. One of the downsides of of state standards, well, I guess a couple of downsides of what we've been talking about of the core. You know, this is now part of, it's not going away. This is what we're going to, you know, it's been accepted by the court. It's part of our system. And one of the downsides, I think, on David, your point is that you see it as a minimum, but I guess you're both sort of saying the same thing in somewhat different ways, which is that it can be viewed as a minimum. And then it can be viewed, I think, as Tony is saying, as something, and I'm using, um, this, is a, this is my own phrase, something that can be just phoned in rather than, uh, uh, a kind of set of minimum baselines that you can build off of and, you know, enhance and work with and also implement creatively in your district. So is, is there a dumbing down kind of effect that, that, that these might have? There's two dimensions to that, David. There's the dumbing down of 
the curriculum and at Cherry Hill when you have to meet the standards or West Windsor when people start looking at that as the minimum when, when, when in the past they've always far, uh, you know, exceeded the standard. But then in, 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 a, in a Millville or a Pemberton, or uh, I think that's a dumbing down of the teacher's uh, practices. I think that the teachers have more to offer, but they're constricted in what they, and, and I draw from my Cherry Hill experience. I saw the freedom that the Cherry Hill teachers had to exceed the standards and not be handcuffed by the, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the stringent uh, rules that are put on as far as if you don't, you know, it's very, uh, it's like we, in, in Gloucester uh, City, they called it Stepford teaching. You had to do the success for all. And it was like, you had to do this script and you had to read that. And then, you know, there, there were success, there was, there was success stories with success for all uh, in Maryland. And I was, and I work with those folks, but uh, the thing is though, it, it just, it took all their innovations and, and all their, all their type of choices that go into teaching that make it a, a rewarding profession. And then the kids don't have that experience then. So it really limits it. There are elements to what Tony was just sharing that, there are districts out there that follow prescribed curriculum. So if it's, it's, if it's the 138th day, we must be on this page with this activity and this lesson. And that's, that's a district that's trying to be in compliance with, with the curriculum to meet the standards. And the only way they can assure that everyone teaches everything if they tell them what to teach on that day. The problem with that is it's not respectful of teachers or kids. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't ever ensure that the students uh, are learning, um, have understood with mastery, and it's not in any way aspirational. So, I mean, th that has, an, to me, a very negative uh, impact. And districts, I know, that do that. And we have districts in Jersey that still do that to this day. Um, it's usually a compliance measure. It's usually because there's been some kind of um, action, either you know, compliance action, investigation action, or um, it may be even a superintendent's or district's belief that that's how you ensure that the content standards are being taught. In that case, in my estimation, it has um, a detrimental impact on kids and teachers. When you talk about being aspirational and trying to make sure we're empowering teachers, um, and I think that's where Tony's also going, is like, how Thank do we make sure we're we're setting them on fire with, with a love of like that passion of what they study the material for and bringing it to life for children. They have to be involved. Their voices have to be heard. They have to be actively engaged in the content uh, creation in the development of the curriculum in the review and of the assessment and, and then curtailing it to make sure they're meeting the needs of their learners and then looking at scope and sequence issues. And the standards have changed over time. So it has to be a very dynamic experience where you take a look at the standards, you take a look at how they've adjusted, you reflect on your curriculum to see if sequentially you have to change anything, but then the assessments also change and they've changed a lot. And sometimes how the assessments change, the contents out of this con content sequence can be out of whack to the assessment. And so then you have to start looking at, to set our, our kids being set up for failure on an assessment because of how we sequentially teach something. If we're doing an assessment in March, but we're not teaching the content in May. So now you have to sort of reflect on even that that element of your of your content, but they have to they have to know that they have some instructional choice in the design of lesson, in order to sort of bring that bring the material to life for the kids. Now that doesn't mean that it's it's free reign wild west. There has to be some beliefs around the the, the department, the building, the school. You know there needs to be some kind of content oversight 
from super supervision. What I've seen happen to colleagues with budget challenges is some of those layers go away. And then all of a sudden you don't have that same oversight. There, oversight's not a bad thing, you know, you know, if it's working in partnership with. I mean, and we do see that that is something that some of my colleagues in other districts have started to lose that layer. So David, you're raising a good point and I, I wanna move on to funding because we don't have, 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 we could go on with this topic. It's a really an important one, but we do have to move on. But I think you're raising a point I don't wanna leave, which part of what the court, uh, what was presented to the court by the state, which the court accepted was not just the substantive curriculum standards that we've been talking about, but also an assessment system that was tied, you know, connected to those standards, state assessment system I'm talking about here, um, in order to determine proficiency, right? Student performance and, and not just student performance, but also as we've come to know, uh, the performance of schools and districts and ultimately folks like you that are on the firing line, right? That set seems to have had a role in maybe that's playing also into, into the stifling, if you will, of creativity and uh, unleashing sort of the power of a strong faculty and teaching uh, leadership and, and teachers and so forth and so on to not just meet the standards, but to go beyond them. What, what role has the assessment system played in all of this? Because, you know, it, you get to like, oh, well, we got it, we got, you know, especially in urban districts, it's like, you know, we've got to get our scores up. Well, I can just draw from my experience that I, I do have to start with a framework of where you are and where you need to go. Uh, but, and, and again, in, in Gloucester City, we had to do that in the math program anyway. And then I, you know, I focused on the art and science of teaching to where we had a everyday math, but then eventually we did drift away from the, from the scope and sequence that was prescribed. And then it, it bought more teacher buy-in on it. So I think that, uh, did the test scores motivate? Does it motivate a teacher to do better? Yes. I think everybody wants to, you know, when we talk about standards-based report cards, but eventually everybody, everybody seems to want to get an A. So uh, the, the tests do matter as much as we say it shouldn't matter. And it should be, uh, like I said, I, I related to a standards-based report card. Uh, people want to know they got an A. And, and then so that's what, that's what separates a West Windsor Plainsboro from a Millville. You know, no matter what anybody wants to say, you know, if we go and read a newspaper or go on the internet and look at a sports team, what are the standings? Where do you buy a house? You know, where are you going to buy a house? You're going to buy a house in West Windsor Plainsboro because the test scores are higher. You know, it matters economically. That's the world we, we're, we're in now. And there's, David, you want to comment on the testing uh, requirements? Because they, they, they did come in after Abbott 4. Supreme Court said there had to be testing and there, then the code kind of came around about what the three grade level band of testing in New Jersey is taking it upon it to do our annual testing now and most grades. I find almost no value in, in any state assessment um, that they give. We get almost all of our value in our internal benchmark uh, data about how we move our, our kids along their trajectory. Um, the state is lagging, it's lagging data um, it's often, um, well, if we just even look at the last five, seven years, the test has changed. We've had, it's been disjointed. There's no correlation. We literally made up start strong after just pulling, pulling, uh, test items with no correlation and, and, and no cut scores. And I mean, it really has, it has no meaning to do, and we won't use them. We use internal data when we make determinations on student placement. Um, and so, 
you know, I, I find them to be worthless, quite frankly. Um, that being said, now we're going to enter to another state uh, stage of high stake testing for juniors. Um, a group of kids that have been through sent home in ninth grade uh, in, in COVID um, had dysregulated, disjointed experiences as sophomores, and now are coming back to year three of COVID high school. Um, and, and depending on whatever the model they've experienced, and we're 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 literally penalizing another generation of kids. Um, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure who's truly benefiting from this test we're going to do in in March. But here we go, running right into you know doing it all over again. Um, I, and I can honestly say like I've never worried as you know, and this is a product of being where I am. I've never worried about the data coming back about what my kids' scores are. We have had to look at subgroup data, right, and really dive in on our special education population and look within our African-American, our Hispanic student populations and ask some really hard questions of ourselves um, around, you know, why are some groups of students achieving at very different levels? And our scores are very much demographically split by, by, by race. Um, you know, so Asian outperforms everyone else, white just outperforms African-American, Hispanic, and African-American, Hispanic come in. Special education subgroup broken out um, does the worst of everybody. And, and then you start looking at the sequences. And then you start looking at but 70% of our students that are graduating that had an IEP or going off to college. So what, what, what's going on with the assessment versus our curriculum sequence versus I don't know. I don't. We don't. When we're still, we still wrestle with those challenges. But we have much more answers on our on our in, internal data than we do on our external. I think your point is well taken. That the assess the state's assessment, we hear this constantly from from just the districts that we talk to and the people we talk to. The state's assessment system is is not valuable for the per, for the reasons that you just described. But that gets to another point that the court talked about. I want to get to, which is the state's responsibility here to lead the system forward and lead these things forward. And we'll talk about that. But I wanted to talk about, I think, you know, you talked about the how, Tony. And I will say that the court was very well aware of the how. I'm going to read you a quote that came right after they adopted the standards. And then they were asked to look at this funding formula that the legislature had adopted and whether or not it met the state's claim that it delivered the resources necessary for kids, all kids in all districts, to actually have the supports and the essential resources, teachers, support staff, and all of that to have a meaningful opportunity to achieve those standards. But before they got to that, they said, and I'm, I'm reading a quote here, our function, however, as the court, is to determine whether the, the new approach encompassing content performance standards together with funding measures comports with the constitutional guarantee of a thorough and efficient education. Now, this is the important sentence. So I think they're speaking to, to you two right now. The standards themselves do not ensure any substantive level of achievement. Real improvement still depends, real improvement still depends on the sufficiency of educational resources, successful teaching, effective supervision, efficient administration, and a variety of other academic, environmental, and societal factors needed to assure a sound education. How's that sound? David, yeah, I mean, that it sounds, kind of put the nail on the head here. Yeah, I mean, it sounds about right. I mean, so if we think about the professional growth of our staff, investing in them, investing in them as professionals, uh, empowering their voice, supporting them, that's that's a huge part of the winning formula in WWP. I mean, I have, I've, I'm almost afraid to say, it, but I have 26 instructional coaches um, in in district 
that are teachers that teach other teachers um, and that, that support in addition to my supervisors. Um, some, of the best, some of the best money that we spend is on those, those instructional coaches because of what we can do with our, how far we can push our colleagues and push their learning and their willingness to learn from each other away from the concern of evaluation. Um, because it's, it's, there's a, there's a, um, a freedom uh, that comes with learning from your colleague, being willing to take risks, the mentoring process that comes through that. Um, so the investment in curriculum writing and learning about assessments and instructional strategies. I mean, yeah, they, they, I mean, the environment in which you teach, you know, the, the fact that I passed $115 million referendum, $114,750,000 referendum is one thing. The fact that it's at zero taxpayer impact is a whole different story, but it gets into some, you know, a multi-year thinking about how we budget. Um, and then just, you know, I think there's a there's a something about the funding formula I think's missed, and and this is a, a question to Tony, but I'd like to then follow with my point. You know, Tony, do you have a, like what percentage of your budget is is your general fund that you can build your budget on your two percent on your general fund? You know, if you think in terms of like, I I can raise I can raise two percent on ninety percent of my budget. Right, and I'm um, and I'm twelve percent. Right. So, so 12% of my budget is local tax levy. So it's like $250,000. Right. We're on 3.4 million. So, so you spread that out over time and, and, and the formula breaks. It looks great at the inception, but you know, I, I can raise 3.4 million on my general fund. Now my state aid is going to be different, right? My state aid has been vastly different, but when I look at my general fund at 3.4, my fixed expenses are going up about six. So I still have a problem in my budget for next year. Right, but I can raise 3.4. If Tony's fixed cost on his staffing is $2 million in salary increases, he only has $250,000 to figure out his budget. That's forget about special ed costs, transportation, technology, healthcare increases, just the big four or five categories. He's in trouble before he even starts and he's praying for a state aid. Well, that's, that's what I was just gonna say, unless he, get, unless he gets an increase in state aid. Um, and we'll get, let, let's, talk, let's talk about the funding formula then. It's a good segue. Um, yeah. When you were raising David, and I think I wanted to, to just emphasize the court's this this statement. I think the court was essentially saying, "Look, we're going to accept these. This gives, the state has given us these standards. They're going to have an assessment system. You know, we can't. We don't know whether they're, they're any good, whether they're rigorous enough, and all that. But this is a good framework. But we recognize that these standards alone do not ensure any substantive level of achievement. I think that's such an important point. I always." kind of quote that. And they talk about real improvement, depending on a whole bunch of things, which is, you mentioned it, David, the sufficiency of resources. And resources, I'm talking about the broad panoply of resources, from the condition of your buildings, to the amount of money you have in the general fund to spend on your basic program, professional development, coaches, things like that, on down to your ability to provide extra services or additional support services for kids that need it, whether they're kids with disabilities, kids who do need to learn English in school, kids who are experiencing trauma, kids who are experiencing violence in their home or in their neighborhood, so forth. And in, in the era of COVID, that's a, a big deal. So that's a sort of segue. The court threw out a funding formula, the funding formula because it said um, that funding formula does not in any way attempt to link the content standards to the actual funding to deliver, to deliver that content and therefore, it's clearly inadequate and thus unconstitutional. 
Fast forward to the School Funding Reform Act, which was then adopted and which we're now living under, and you were talking about, David, and I wanna get into this. A little over a decade later, the legislature finally comes up with a school funding formula that they think would pass muster to the court, this concrete connection, concretely connected. And there's a whole process in front of the court reviewing the formula, so forth and so on, and the court in 2008 signed off on the formula saying it, it meets that test. It's linked to the resources to provide. Uh, they've shown that it's uh, linked in a concrete way to the content stamp to deliver the content standards to give her kids the opportunity to achieve them um, and is uh, adequate and constitutional. Tony, I'm gonna to start with you. You've been grappling with this funding formula and the implementation of it since it was enacted in 2008. It's a weighted student funding formula, which means that it provides a base cost for all districts, and then it provides additional cost and supposedly funding for kids who are poor for high poverty districts. It's you know weighted even higher as your district con poverty concentration goes up. There's extra resources for English learners and obviously uh, funding for kids with disability. How's it worked out, the SFRA as we call it? Well, it hasn't worked out real well for almost all the Abbots because of the fact that they're missing some of the pieces that you've had in the Abbott rulings. When you look at the supplemental programs, so when you look at kindergarten has to have an aid. Every kindergarten class must have an aid. Uh, kindergarten must not exceed 21 students in a class. Uh, and, 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 and then onward, there's many different existing statutes that were... Back in the day, Pat Austin, who was my BA, would say this was an Abbott reg, but it, with SFRA, it got thrown out. And so that got that got left, that got on, on the chopping block. I don't know where, where that went. That's on the ground somewhere when SFRA got put in because living in Pemberton for five years and all, and when you look at from whatever, how many years they were getting funded through the, uh, through the Abbott process, David, I forget what the name of the term was, but we, I remember going to Gloucester City and there was always these, you would go to the Department of Ed and then we would say, we need, we need a math facilitator. We need a, uh, you know, a, a reading facilitator. We need to lower class size. And we would haggle with Gordon McGinnis and Annette Castiglione. And next thing you know, we get some, like, some money. And, and, and so all those things fell by the wayside with SFRA. I can't tell you formally what they were, but I can tell you that living as a superintendent in Pemberton, they still were existing, but they were the cuts because, and, and it's the same thing with, the, uh, uh, David said, uh, Pemberton had a $100 million budget. They had a $12 million base uh, local tax levy. So taxes were only going up $250,000 a year, but yet we were getting slashed uh, because we were over adequacy, but we were over adequacy because of the supplemental programs that were put in because of all that went on in the previous 15 years and it was not accounted for. And all of a sudden Pemberton becomes the, the blinking lights of being overfunded. And then it's not the case. Yeah, so let me just comment on that. I hope I made I, sense. No, one of the issues that we raised as a constitutional matter when we, when we were um, dealing with the formula and the adoption of the formula was the fact that there were certain Abbott districts that under that formula would have been considered overfunded because under the old process, they were able to get additional money for supplemental programs. Right. Um, most of the Abbott districts, though the urban districts, were still underfunded. 
And isn't that the case in Millville, right? You're still owed state aid under the first. We're, we're still slightly underfunded, yes, in Millville. And how has uh, the, the formula played out in Millville? Because my question to you was, I understand you had certain problems in Pemberton because of how it played out. But in Millville, you're close to full funding. Does, is it delivering the resources your, your, your kids need to meet the standards? Let me say it that way, because that's the court's constitutional test. I think it's um, a lack of leadership and sustainability of leadership uh, and uh, decision budget. Like when you listen to David talk, uh, you, you hear a concerted plan uh, over time. And so Millville lacks a direction uh, and has no um, base of success to build on as uh, simply as I can put it right now. So you know, we're re reinventing, the, reinventing the wheel almost every day. So there's a lot of inefficiencies. Plus there are a lot of different positions and programs that we currently pay for that when we look at the return on investment just aren't there, but that term was never brought forth in, in a mill bill as far as uh, how effective are the programs. So, and that's what we did in Pemberton. Then we had a look at, you know, the efficacy of all the programs that were put on and if we need them or not, but then there's a, and, and then the culture of that district says, well, we need uh, this AVID program or we need the AIDS in the kindergarten. What are you talking about? This is what we've had for 20 years. And so you deal with morale then because of that. So it's a, it's a slippery slope when you look at uh, looking for efficiencies because of a particular um, uh, inefficient program and try to slash that. Let me just follow up with two quick questions and then I'm going to turn to David on the whole question of the formula a little mm -hmm. bit. But Tony, so two things. Um, I think you're saying, are you saying that if, well, if the, if the formula as it's calculated, this weighted formula with a base cost for all your kids, the extra funding that's supposed to, you know, that's built into the formula for kids who have additional needs, kids in poverty, kids in high poverty districts such as yours, English learners, um, that at full funding of the formula, in other words, the, the, the full amount of state aid and local revenue that you're supposed to have in your formula, are you telling us that, that, that if you had the ability to, that your problem isn't so much with the, with the budget level, the overall budget level, it's with your internal ability to make changes that you need to make in the deployment of that funding. In other words, the deployment of those resources to make them more effective. Is that what I'm hearing? No, it's both. It's both. I think it's going to be looking for efficiencies because that's the reality I'm in. But the fact that, that Millville has and several districts have, uh, former Abbott districts have an acuity issue that is not commensurate to the weighted, uh, the weighted program they have for funding. When you look at homelessness and transportation and uh, foster kids, it's just not in the formula for uh, confounding variables that go into the expenses each each year for uh, a community like Millville or Pemberton. It's just so it's both. I'm sorry to say both, but it's the truth. It's just the facts. Uh, we have to build efficiencies because that's the reality. 
and you can't depend on any anything coming down the pike, any changes. You have to work with uh, the within the uh, the RN size. But uh, but again, I think that being in Pemberton for five years and in Millville, we we spend money on on uh, on certain things that are essential that are not essential from my experience in Cherry Hill or Berlin and Gibbsboro or Northern Burlington. It's just, it's my not second, so, so you're telling us there's certain student needs, additional student needs or extra student needs, whatever word you're gonna put on it, that certain uh, populations of students have in an, in, a, in, a, in an urban district, like poor urban district like yours. 100%. They weren't, they weren't captured in the formula. Is that? Is 100%. That okay. okay. 100%. Um, there needs to be an audit on the on those expenses, uh, and then then also that uh, the 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 reputation that the Abbots had that if you moved into a district you would you can get out of district placement. So Pemberton had a reputation of sending if you went and moved in Pemberton, you would get uh, a, you know an out of district special ed placement. Uh, and so uh, being in, uh, like I said, I was we share kids from the military base. So if you, if you, what they call a permanent change of station uh, on the base, and you knew you had a, uh, a, a severe, you know, an acute issue with a child you, that they were, it was, it was a un, unwritten law, unwritten rule that you go to Pemberton because they're going to facilitate your family's needs for that child. Yeah. And so you looked at it, uh, like I said, the military aid bill that I had passed, we had we have gotten a million dollars from the from the uh, federal government for military impact aid, but we were putting out eight hundred and eighty thousand dollars just for out of district placement for the military kids, and that's just for the military kids. And that's twenty percent of our population. So there's there there are expenses that aren't accounted for in Abbott districts. So the, so the formula doesn't capture some of these uh, no. additional needs and unique needs. Um, I do want to ask you. One other thing the court had said in ordering additional funding for urban districts and um, uh, or had had ruled when they did that, they placed upon the state the obligation to work with districts to ensure that all funding is used, and these are the court's words, effectively and efficiently to enable uh, kids to achieve, to achieve those standards. Do you get any help from the state on some of those issues around dealing with moving money around, making hard issues about not spending money on something that doesn't work anymore, uh, that's not effective, that's, uh, you know, um, that, uh, you know, or it's a program that's outdated or needs to be shifted? Do you get any help at all from the state on this? I want to say uh, on paper we do. Uh, there's a mid-year budget review that we meet with our executive county business administrator and executive county superintendent but just it, it but the thing is the uh i think so i'm going to say partially but not enough so it, it's not an absolute no <laughs> david how's the funding formula work well i guess you don't have to worry too much about the funding formula right because or do you? Well, I mean, well, how does it play out in West Windsor Plainsboro? Yeah, so we're we're um, over ad adequacy and underfunded. So a lot of it's because of decisions made years gone by where the district before they could go to 2%, they, they were going up 4%, 5% plus. Just to so stop there, when you say go to 2%, just for the audience to know. Oh, sure, sure. So, so, two, go ahead, explain it. 
Of course. Uh, so, so the budget formula allows for districts that don't have a, um, a voting a voters uh, April vote uh, for a school board to make a decision to increase the general fund taxes at 2% plus allowances. And there's really two bases of allowances. One is a, an enrollment growth limitation based on 10% growth in any one year, um, which is rare. Um, and the other is based on bank cap off of a, a spending growth limitation adjustment for healthcare. Um, which really is going to go away because of the healthcare changes under the Sweeney healthcare plan. Um, so really, there is no mechanism after this year except for two percent um, on the general fund, which is going to be crippling um, for school districts because um, that couple hundred thousand that we could raise on the on the two, on the, the allowance part um, is the difference between some of the programs we run for kids. Um, we're under um, we're under our, our fair share. Um, so we still have um, monies technically owed by formula, um, but whether we get them or not is year to year. Um, so we don't bank on state aid um, when, when we build our budget. We hope for it. We hope for flat. We build our budget based on the idea we're going to be flat funded. And if we get a funding increase, there are usually programs for kids that get, get built in. So when we so we, we have challenges, though. I mean, when we look at like the over adequacy component, if we ever were forced in the formula change to look at, we'd start going to away from the classroom. But you'd start seeing like our things that are really working, our instructional coaches, which every district should have. Um, we'd start looking at our, our nursing ratio. We'd start looking at our guidance counselor ratio. We would um, have to look at our UBHC partnership where we have four on-site mental health clinicians um, we'd have to look at that program. We'd have to look at our class three police officers and our partnership with West Windsor and Plainsboro Township to have uh, officers. We'd have to look at our security. Um, we'd have to look at the depth of, and breadth of, of extracurricular activities offered to kids. We'd have to look at our support programs like our a reading recovery program for first graders. You know, we'd, we'd have to look at places far away from class average uh, or class size. Um, and with that, um, it would have a devastating impact on some of the very structures we build. And we'd have to look away, quite honestly, from the amount of professional development and curriculum writing we do every summer. So, you know, what, what, if they ever changed the formula and they took some of those components out, we, it would have a devastating impact. I have a question for David. Uh, your, your local fair share, you're paying almost $30 million more than what you should be paying, correct? Yeah. Oh, so your, your um, local... Yeah, the burdens on our the burdens on our local to carry, right? So, so I think what Tony is saying is your uh, the amount of money you raise off the property tax for mm -hmm. your schools exceeds by thirty million the amount the state says the minimum amount this or the the amount the state says you should be putting in. Is that right? right? So it affects your yeah. all of the, a lot, another way to look at this is that, and the formula doesn't um, the formula doesn't take that money away from you. It allows you to keep it and it allows you right. to add to it by 2%, right? right? Exactly. At the same time, we're getting less in aid than we're supposed to, which is... And, and how much state aid? You get very little state aid, right? Because of your property. We're just, we're just over 10 million. What percentage of your budget? Uh, about, about, about 5%. Tony, what's we're, your state aid in Millville versus local property tax? It's, uh, it's 88 to 12, 88% state, 12% local. Yeah. Right there is uh, uh, the, the um, you know, um, that's a reflection of the court. Right. 
directions, I should say, because in, in uh, the reality, yeah, you can argue you can argue about whether it's you know precise or not, or needs to be adjusted or modified and all of that. But I think what the court wanted, which we have, is a formula that recognize it's based that doesn't create the disparities we saw previously for 30, 40 years, which was the level of education, the quality of education that children got, depend, the over-reliance on the property tax across the board, where the quality of education was dependent on the property wealth and income. The court was very strong on that point. And I would say that, you know, fast forward to today, we have a formula that does build in that recognition. Now, that doesn't mean we, <laughs> both of you don't have problems uh, here to, uh, to deal I, with on an ongoing I, I basis. To, I have to say something, David, that I'm very thankful that it, that it is the way it is. I'm in Millville and uh, and it is helpful the way that the, the structure, it, you know, currently exists. The, the issue I have is not negatively impacting Millville, but the perception of the people in Millville is that since they're no longer an Abbott, they're losing their state funding and to educate them on the fact that their the, the the funding is based on need now and and the fact that they're they they are getting funding commensurate on need yeah and they don't yeah, understand that when they took the abbott title away and now this is the mayor of 12 12 years i went to the baseball game with him and he said that to me and i had a coach him on the fact that no you did not lose aid significantly because you went away from being an abbot the funding formula changed changed based on need so there has to be an education in the in the in the community uh in the electorate in regard to school funding because that seems to be a misnomer that um they lost their aid because of the change from an abbot district to an sda district right well, I think there's a lot of education that has to go on on this across the board. But that's a really, really, a really good point. I'm sure David has his own education problems with his elected officials too. About how come how come our local fair share is thirty million dollars above what the state says we should be putting in, right? I want to end with uh, on this note. Uh, well, I'm going to end on on a note, uh, uh, hopefully a unifying note around funding, because. When, one of the things the court said was when they accepted the um, formula as constitutional, the formula builds in a process every three years, had built in a process of every three years where the State Department of Education and the governor uh, are supposed to review the formula and make um, modifications and adjustments to address the different problems in the formula. The court this is a quote from the court that, that, that I think all, all of us that work on school funding, whether you're an IJ district, a suburban district, a Garden State district, a district in the Great Schools, New Jersey, high needs district group, doesn't matter, should get our minds around. The court, the court said when they approved the formula that the state's funding formula's constitutionality, in other words, its adequacy, right, to deliver resources for all kids across the state, is not an occurrence in a moment in time. It is a continuing obligation, right? So the fact that they adopted the formula doesn't end the story. It starts the new story from year to year. And part of the new story is that the formula requires the governor and the commissioner and the Department of Education every three years to revisit the formula, the costs in the formula, which gets to your point, Tony, are there needs 
of students that weren't built into the cost structure of the formula that we now should include? Are there problems where certain elements of the formula are underfunded like transportation that need to be addressed? Special education was recognized as a problem from day one. Nobody was really happy with the funding of special education in the formula to begin with. It was supposed to be looked at. And the court said this, the approve the funding formula. They said our holding, uh, upholding the formula, our ruling allowing the formula to be implemented, issues in, good, in the good faith anticipation of a continued commitment by the legislature and executive to address whatever adjustments are necessary to keep the SFRA formula operating at its optimal level. The three-year look back, as it was called, adjustment process, which occurs every three years, and one is occurring in this coming year, by the way, and the state's adjustments based on that three-year review will provide more information about the efficacy of this funding formula. There should be no doubt that the court would require remediation of any deficiencies of a constitutional dimension should such problems emerge. So my question to both of you is, because you're in different camps, you work in sort of different camps. Uh, David's in the Garden State Coalition with our good friends over there that we've been worked, we've worked with and helped and uh, sat at tables for years uh, working with them. And Tony's in the in the 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 old Abbott district now called the High Needs District Camp. How do we get people to? How do we get these communities together to uh, press the state to fulfill its obligation? In the court's words, to, to make whatever adjustments are necessary to keep the SFRA funding at its optimal level, whether it's for a high a, a high wealth district like David's in West Windsor, or Tony, your low wealth district, high poverty community in Millville. What do we need to do to, to bring that about? Well, that that is in that is the challenge, right? The 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 reality is is that the budgets in the place we are is a function of formulas over time. And each community is nuanced, right? Our, our needs are nuanced. Our staffing ratios are nuanced. Our contractual obligations are nuanced. And if we look at things formulaically and then try to apply a, a, a new formula to the nuances of all the different districts, you're going to have lots of folks hurting. Lots of districts are going to end up finding, most likely be losing funding and most likely find themselves cutting, cutting resources and supplies and staffing ratios and whatnot for kids and services for kids. So, you know, what, whatever we do, I think a unifying factor has to be that there should be no harm done to the students that we're serving today. And then we have to almost look at it from how do we build this? How do we build this forward? Because if Tony's for the formula that's impacting Tony's community is missing aspects that it absolutely needs to be fixed so that his children, his students, his community gets the sports resources that, that they need for the kids to be successful. That shouldn't, that should, in my estimation, come at the expense of his neighbor district losing funding, right? They may be flat funded, they may be held harmless, but it doesn't mean Tony shouldn't get aid, uh, additional services. When we come at um, something from the perspective of the only way to solve this is to take from somewhere to, to help somewhere else, like we've essentially done with S2 districts. Um, you know, the S2 districts budgets, it's not like they were sitting flush uh, on cash and had these like ridiculous class sizes of 12. 
you know, that's just not the story. Now they have class sizes of mid thirties, right? So by taking those funds away the way they have, they've impacted and hurt school communities. And so whatever they do, it has to be, how do we help lift kids up and lift school communities up at the same time, not hurting other, other communities. If we came from that perspective, I think there's a lot of ways we can move forward. I agree wholeheartedly with what David said. I even with S2, uh, David and I have been in, in discussions many times and, and it was suggested in our superintendent's group, like if you, if you can hold certain people flat and that there's increases in funding, uh, give it to those districts that are underfunded uh, through state aid. Uh, but I'm going to be a little folksy here. I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty demanding person with my BA. And my, I had a veteran BA uh, in Berlin, and I used to drive him crazy, uh, with always looking to improve all the time. And he said, that, he said this to me one time, Tony, the window when you got here was really dirty, and now we cleaned it up. We can see through it now. But you're complaining about little smudge marks now. So, David, I think you cleaned the window up. It, you can see through the window where we, we righted the ship, so to speak, but we just have to clear these little smudge marks up here or there. And it doesn't, you, know, you don't have to replace the window. Right. And I think there, and for some reason, the perception is this is an all or nothing and it's going to be a, a, a loser winner thing. There's like, and then, uh, you know, you got to look at it that way. Let's where the smudge is at. When you look at homelessness, you look at foster children, you'll look at, um, you know, all these, all these other side bar issues of districts, I, I don't think it's going to be in its totality a great deal of money, but it does impact a certain districts more than others. That's what I think. Uh, I don't think it's going to be that drastic, but you don't know that until you get people in a room. All this data is available. The State Department of Ed, their budgetary software has these expenses already available to them in regard to homelessness, and, and, and transportation, uh, all the things that go on with the high needs districts. This should not be a hard fix to look at these, these other expenses that not were put into the school funding formula back in 2008. They just have to be recognized. So I'm gonna um, end on this note, because I think you're, this is, you're, you're both bringing up a theme that's reverberated through a number of these episodes, which is that um, the court rulings are insufficient in and of themselves. They're important. They create a, a legal, strong legal framework in which we can operate, but they have to be implemented by politicians, by our legislators and our governors, you know, in Trenton. And that gets to the importance of advocacy for all of us, that we have got to you know, that um, the key to that is making sure that we hold our legislators and governors to account to, you know, in the court's words, fulfill their, the, the court's anticipation of their commitment. That's what the court said. They anticipated this commitment of the legislature and executive to make whatever adjustments are needed. So I think it's up to all of us to make sure that we hold them to that, to that commitment and get some of the things done that you're talking about. And the last point is something we've raised on all of these is that the fight for equity for all of our kids never ends. It keeps going from year to year. So, um, so I'll see you soon in Trenton, both of you on that note. On that note, we're gonna end. We, it's been a wonderful conversation. David, I can't thank you enough for taking time to be with us and to sharing your experiences at West Windsor. 
best of luck to you and your school and your community and your teachers and parents and you know wonderful folks that support you and same to you tony and uh, you know i know i'll see you around um but same to you thanks for being on this podcast with us and uh, and keep doing such great work in Millville. You know, Millville is one of my favorite places and I'm so glad you're there. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about the Education Law Center, their wide-ranging work to protect the rights of children, and New Jersey's history of school funding litigation, please visit ELC's website at www.edlawcenter.org. For more information about Legal One, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org/legalonenj.